It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So we're headed into part three of the series on Alfred the Great, uh, sort of a unusual uh, theme to be building on, uh, something that probably many of us in here have not spent a lot of time thinking about, are the years, uh, what, was, what were his life uh, years, 849 AD through 899 AD, sort of an odd stretch of time to be focusing on. So these are in the, the days of Charlemagne, and, but overall, the biggest thing happening in the earth is what's happening on this one island. And what is going to take place on this island at the time known as Britannia, we know it as Great Britain now, and one of our common uh, phrases for it throughout the ages has been England, and this territory is greatly going to impact the history of our nation here uh, in America. And so, so much of Western civilization is actually flowing out of what is taking place in this drama that we are looking at. Uh, But the reason we're looking at it is not just as a history lesson, but as a spiritual lesson, because so much of the Christian life is found in the same dynamics that King Alfred is going to face. You don't have a nation known as Wessex that you are commissioned to protect and to uh, stand for. You are given a soul. You are given a mind. You are given a heart. You are given a body. You are given hands and feet, eyes, mouth. And God says, this is a territory that I'm giving you authority to rule over. Bring it into subjection. Rule it well. And so he creates a sub-kingdom. His kingdom, but then we are in this kingdom and given authority to rule well. And so as a result, to understand how kings rule is actually very enlightening to us to know how to rule well in our life. We don't usually use the word rule. That isn't a normal word for us when we're thinking about our thought life, that we need to rule our thought life, and yet that is exactly what we must do. We don't think about the word rule when we think about our emotions, that we need to rule our emotional center, but that's exactly what we need to do. We don't think about the word rule when we're thinking about our sexuality, that we need to rule our sexuality, yet that's exactly what we need to do. And so this then transfers into the other domains or what are called historically, governmentally, jurisdictions, the territories over which we have say. And so that is going to extend into marriage when you get married, family when you have children, and then into business or government if you have roles in those, or the church is, of course, one of the most significant forms of government that exists. And then, like Paul the Apostle, churches. He was over the churches. And so these are jurisdictions that need to be ruled. There's a way in which we are to take care of these things. And so as a result, as we begin to see this story of Alfred, we're going to be able to see it from a micro level, like, okay, how do you rule an individual life? And yet, also, how do you rule a nation? You know, if you look at the Proverbs, I could say, why are you reading the Proverbs? You know that that's written to a king for how to rule a nation? This is the Proverbs of how to rule a nation so that a king would be wise. This is what was imparted to a king so that he could rule well. Why are you reading it? For the same reasons we're going through this. 
It's, this is the Proverbs for our soul. This is how you rule well. This is how you care for that which is in your territory. Alfred is going to make decisions that are actually shocking, surprising in the time period he's going to live. This is going to be a backdrop message, like where I'm still, some of you are probably just dying to get into a story. Like, give me a storyline. And I keep like setting the stage. It's like, yeah, let's put a, another plant up on the stage. Oh, you know, I'd like a bench over here on the stage. Like, could you get to the storyline? So this is called the knockout punch, part three. And we're gonna set the stage. This is a context message, but we'll get, you know, we'll get, at least get something going uh, in the storyline. I like this. I had a completely different name, and then yesterday I was like, yeah, this is, I, I like this one better. The knockout punch. <clears throat> I need to turn on my clicker. That would help. So there's our guy, uh, King Alfred of Wessex. Uh, he's gone down in history as Alfred the Great. So I'm going to say on the screen it says coordinating the knockout punch. So I just want you to evaluate for a second if, if you were a boxer and you were to analyze how you get this fist to actually belt someone properly in the nose or the cheek or the gut, whatever it would be, that is going to knock them out. Okay, how do you do that? Well, it's not just a fist one day says, you know, I'm going to throw a good punch. A fist in and of itself can't throw a punch. You ever thought about that? It's a part of a punch, but it actually in and of itself can't throw a punch. What does it need? It needs an arm, which needs a shoulder. But the shoulder, if all you had was this arm and the shoulder, and it's, you know, they could do various things, but they can't throw a punch. What do they need? They need sort of that torso. Uh, and what does the torso need? It needs a stance. And what does that stance need? It needs strength. It needs heart. But all of this is going to be coordinated by a mind. You see, all of these things need to work together. And the Christian, we're the body. And to work together and to coordinate the blow to the evil one in this generation, for instance, as we see the Vikings swooping into our culture right now, the Vikings symbolic of the devilish movement to stake claim to territory that is not theirs, to, bring, to plunder uh, those that are innocent. You know, they're just minding their own business and the enemy's gonna come in and say, I want that territory. Why is the enemy going to do that and why now? Well, I'm going to go into that. There's a reason why the enemy is encroaching upon our shoreline right now. Did you know that this territory known as North America used to be very dark? It was ruled by uh, devilish, demonic, satanic elements. In fact, fear ruled over this country. I, even when I study uh, the ancient history of this, this country, uh, which we do know a lot about, uh, not in the sense of like what happened you know, back in the 800s, I couldn't tell you that, but back in the 1400s when Columbus was sailing the ocean blue in 1492, we actually do know a lot. And there were a lot of uh, indigenous uh, people that were here that we know as Indians, but they were uh, superstitious, and there was a lot of demonic rule, and fear ruled over this uh, land. Violence ruled over this land. The gospel light is going to come into a very dark place, and it's going to set it free, and it's going to purge out deception. It's going to purge out lies. It's going to purge out violence. It's going to purge out fear, and this territory is actually going to be cleansed, and it's going to become 
a very, very different environment, a place that has produced more missionaries for the sake of the gospel than any place ever on earth. That's a pretty unique transformation. And guess who wants to come back? The old inhabitants want their country back. And so as a result, a lot of what I just described is what has moved into this country over this past year. Violence, fear, deception, that uh, about says it. Uh, and as a result, they're old friends of this territory. And so what we see back in those days of the late 700s to the uh, late 800s is you see a similar thing where there's an onslaught, where the enemy sees a weakness in the midst of a very actually impressively strong island. Britannia, after the Romans are going to take it, and it's going to have Angles and Saxons, and they're going to, in a sense, for 400 years after the Romans leave, they're going to establish a very healthy, whole culture. But then in the 700s, they're going to start arguing and warring with one another. You see, it's very similar to what's happened in North America. We have it pretty easy here. And so when you have it pretty easy, you have a tendency to pick a fight with people that also have it easy. And so it's exactly what we've done in the church. We're divided. We're splintered all over the place. I mean, the divisions in the church are running rampant right now, and they've always been there. I mean, I grew up in the midst of a divided church. But things like COVID and mask wearing and social distancing, and if you should even gather as churches, I mean, all of this stuff has split the body of Christ. Uh, how you're going to handle the vaccine, you know, all these things, literally, people will look at you as if you are a sinner if you get the vaccine or you're a sinner if you don't get the vaccine. Okay, that's a complex culture that the enemy is playing us like a fiddle. He, I mean, we are susceptible to this nonsense is what I'm going to call it because we are allowing trivial things to create havoc in the midst of us. And that's exactly what's going to be happening in Great Britain. Well, sorry. I remember, I've taught on World War II for a long time. It's not Great Britain yet, any more than Alfred is great uh, yet. So in this island, they are going to start breaking down. And all of their history, which they'd had for 400 years, which, you know, if you were to look at the history of America, you know, and when we start to come into our own and when we start to establish ourselves, there's some significant parallels here. And as a result, they are going to be ripe for the picking. Coordinating the knockout punch. The knockout punch. The fist must be in agreement with the arm. The arm must be in agreement with the shoulder, which must be in agreement with the hip which must be in agreement with the feet, which must be in agreement with the heart, which must be in agreement with the mind, which must be in agreement with the spirit, which must be in agreement with the word. I just described for you how Christianity works. I mean, that's, that's it right there. And yet most of us don't think about that. In other words, God has made us as a military weapon. The church of Jesus Christ is unstoppable. When we throw a punch God's way, the enemy cannot defend himself. He has no ability to defend However, if the fist is disconnected from the arm, we already have a problem because the body could do this all day long and it's not going to threaten the enemy, right? If the shoulder gives up and is like, I do not want to work with the arm and I do not want to work with the torso, well, then guess what? We have issues and the body cannot coordinate the movement. Imagine the feet are like, I'm on my own. 
I don't want to have anything to do with the rest of this body. Well, could you imagine you're just sort of a stump on the ground and you're having a tough time doing anything. You can't even get in a stance. All I need to do, if you don't have a stance, all I need to do is shove you and you'll fall back. A stance is critical. So any of these parts separated from themselves are going to create a disabled athlete. An athlete needs to work together with its parts, with its members. And as a result, when the enemy sees the stump athlete sitting there, he's like, let's go get it. And then the other demons are like, but they're stronger than us. Not when they're like that. Let's do it. And they keep encroaching a little further. It's like, I don't think they know what they have. I don't think they understand their authority. And as a result, the enemy begins to win the day, even though we have everything we need for life and godliness. So here's the transformation. Sorry, I even fixed that N on transformation earlier in its back. Uh, So this is how Christianity works. The Word delivers the victory. Remember Jesus? The Word delivers the victory. And now the Holy Spirit is given. What's he doing? He's taking from what is Christ's and bringing it to us from the Word. The Spirit carries the victory to us. The mind grasps what the Spirit is saying. The heart is softened and receives this truth. The feet position themselves in this newfound rock. The hip stations itself into a wrestler's stance. The shoulders pull back and prepare to move with aggression. The arm swings fiercely toward the lies. The fist bops the enemy squarely in the nose. You see, this is actually how each of our individual bodies work too. It's going to start with you looking at the Word. And then you, via the Holy Spirit's convincing... Your mind is going to catch it, and it's going to transform not just your thinking, but your life, and your heart is going to be set aflame. It's going to no longer be a heart of stone. It's going to be soft and malleable and humble and contrite and broken so that this body can now come into alignment and work in agreement with what? Ultimately, the Word. By the power of the Holy Spirit, because you have agreed with the facts You have set your mind on things above. You have allowed this body to come into agreement with it. And as a result, you individually can throw a knockout punch. And that's very significant. So I dug this up yesterday. I was was studying something similar uh, to this. And I was like, oh, that works out perfect. Even though it's, uh, see, this this is me studying the number seven in Scripture. I know, it sounds like a strange thing to study, right? But that's, that's Eric. I, I, I see something enough times on, hmm. And so one of the things I'm going to say is like seven systems in the body, okay? This is a picture of the Old Testament temple, see? And now with a little uh, Eric um, artist, artistry on it, I'm a very artistic picture. But the Holy of Holies is at the top. You know those, those bottom, there's two pillars. There's what? What what are their names? Boaz and Jacob? Jacob? I I remember what what the name of it is, but there's two pillars, and there's two long hallways on the side of the temple, and it's actually a picture of a man laying on his back, uh, which is, of course, Jesus. Jesus is going to lay in the tomb on his back, and then he's going to rise again. He's going to rebuild the temple in three days. I mean, it's, it's pretty profound if you were to ponder it, right? But we're not getting into that. That's just a side note. And so what you see is there's a head, seeing, hearing, understanding, judging, communicating. There's a heart. There's a stomach. There's loins. There's strength. There's help. So two arms. You know, one fights. One serves. 
you have standing one leg and then you have direction because it turns and pivots. Uh, and so I was, this, this is just Eric's brainstorm, right? But it's showing you that if any one of these parts is missing and not coordinating with the other, you have issues, right? The seven pillars need to work together. So the reason I'm bringing that up is because there's something, this ancient island of Britannia is going to be called a heptarchy. I know, that's a nice big word for the seven-part kingdom. It's seven nations within one island, okay? A hept seven, archy. So the crumbling heptarchy. And so what we have is, when we look at this, it's, I, I count more than seven, right? However, I've, I've been trying to figure out what the seven are, and this is my best guess, okay? Wales is in white, and up top, they don't really include Scotland in it, which is now Scotland, and then they don't include Ireland. And so typically when they talk about this kingdom, they're going to divide it up this way, and that, that's my best guess for why they come up with seven, okay? But that's what a heptarchy is. So the spiritual heptarchy, that's us. It's the body of Christ as a whole, and it's us as individuals. And in other words, there's multiple parts and members that are working together to actually accomplish something or to throw the knockout punch. Proverbs 9.1, wisdom has built her house and has hewn out her seven pillars. Hmm. Revelation 1.4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. So there seems to be something about, you know that David and his mighty men, he's gonna have 37 mighty men. He's gonna have one guy who's chief and then he's going to have a top three, and then he's going to have a second tier of three. He's going to be surrounded by seven. That's just interesting. And so in my mind, I'm like chewing on it going, okay, God, what do I do with that? However, what I do with that is just say, okay, I know that God seems to establish seven as the foundation. This is the whole. This is what he intended it to be. Second Peter 1, 2 through 10. So this is typically going to be called the seven graces, some people will call it the eight graces because it says add to your faith. So, but if you start with faith, you add seven graces to it. Isn't that interesting? There's going to be seven different movements of God very specifically to establish your knockout punch, to establish you as an athlete in the kingdom of God. Let's read it. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and, as, and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power is given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith. Okay, so you have faith. You have turned and believed in Jesus Christ. Now add to that faith seven things. And so here they are. Arite, which is translated typically as virtue, which I would call the grace for overcoming sin and walking in triumph. Gnosis, which is translated typically knowledge, the grace for understanding truth and walking in faith. Egretea, translated temperance or self-control, the grace for guarding the soul from sin's encroachment and walking in self-control. Hupomone, translated typically patience, the grace for endurance, perseverance, and immovability. Eusebia, translated godliness, the grace for honorable action. Philadelphia, typically translated brotherly love, 
the grace for people, and agape, love, typically translated, or charity, the grace for walking in all the graces and for revealing God's very nature and behavior always. What you're seeing is the coordination, just like I said, fist, add to your fist an arm, add to your arm a shoulder, add to your shoulder a torso, add to your torso some good solid foundation, some good legs, add to that leg a good heart, add to that heart a mind, and then put it all together and you're going to bust the jaw of the evil one. And that's sort of what he's going to say here. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. If you do these things, the enemy can't knock you back. If you do these things, you're on the offensive, not the defensive. And so as a result, wisdom has hewn out her seven pillars. This is, this is like Eric looking at this heptarchy because I see this island and it's impressive. They have coordination. They're able to purge their enemies, but then they're going to get weak. They're going to lose sight of this and the fist is going to start arguing with the arm. And the arm's going to start arguing with the shoulder. And the shoulder's going to start arguing with the torso. The torso's going to argue with the legs and the feet. And then they're going to argue with the heart. And the mind is going to be like, what in the world are we supposed to do with this? And as a result, you have a very weakened body. In come the Vikings. This is the precise time in history where the Vikings are going to start salivating, going, we got them, guys. The divided nation. So this is Winston Churchill commenting on this exact time period. This is actually, he's going to comment on the, the time right before Alfred. The monk of the Middle Ages named Bede attempts to paint for us and so far as he can explain the spectacle of Anglo-Saxon England in its first phase. A Christian England. So this is actually a Christian nation. It's almost hard for us to imagine that in the 700s, 800s it was Christian. But that's exactly what it was. It was influenced by what is going to take place in and through the apostolic work in Rome, in and through Rome, and then it's going to spread to this island. It's a Christian island. So a Christian England divided by tribal, territorial, dynastic, and personal feuds into what an Elizabethan antiquary, that's a historian, called the Heptarchy. Seven kingdoms of varying strength, all professing the gospel of Christ and striving over each other for mastery by force and fraud. Did I just describe the church in America or did I describe the ancient heptarchy from the island of Britannia? Let me read it again just in case uh, you're confused of if I'm talking about 2021 or the 7-800s. And so far as he can explain the spectacle of Anglo-Saxon England in its first phase, it's a Christian England divided by tribal, territorial, dynastic, and personal feuds into what an Elizabethan historian called the Heptarchy, seven kingdoms of varying strength, all professing the gospel of Christ and striving over each other for mastery by force and fraud. For almost exactly 100 years from 731 to 829, there was a period of ceaseless warfare amongst themselves, conducted with cruelty and rapine under a single creed. What's their creed? Jesus. 
That's sort of a sad statement, isn't it? This is the decline of Christianity. This is not what God intended, but under the creed of Christianity, they are killing each other. It's like, we're more right than you. This is our territory. I'm a fist. The fist is actually the part that beats the nose up. You're trying to act like it's all about you, O-Arm. But I'm here to tell you, I'm the one that takes the hit. You see all these bruises here on my knuckles? They're all swollen up. I'm the one that's actually doing the work here. In other words, every denomination thinks of itself as more right. And as a result, it empties itself of whatever strength it has. Could you imagine? It's like, we're the ones that produce the wheat for this whole country. Come on, guys, you need to show some respect here. Well, we're the ones that produce the iron ore. You know, so why do you think you're more important than we are? So we take the Bible, divide it up into seven sections, and we all state claim. And we argue over how our section is more correct than yours. The whole thing is for us all. And as a result, the body, instead of working together, begins to splinter apart. So Benjamin Merkel is going to, in a sense, comment on the same thing. At Alfred's birth, the island of Britain was divided into a number of different nations. In addition to the division between the Celtic tribes that ruled Scotland, Wales, and Cornwall, the area of modern-day England was divided up between a number of different Anglo-Saxon nations, Northumbria, Mercia, East Anglia, Wessex, and the several sub-kingdoms of Essex, Kent, Sussex, and others. Over the course of the reigns of Alfred, his son Edward and his grandson Ethelstan, see, I'm giving a lot away here. You know, you know that uh, Alfred had a son and had a grandson. Oops. Uh, you may have known that already, but uh, these various Anglo-Saxon kingdoms were gradually united into one great kingdom of the English people. And though we might anachronistically refer to the people Alfred ruled as the quote-unquote English, this was a concept that was introduced by Alfred halfway through his reign. And it was not until the end of the reign of Ethelstan, which is his grandson, and his victory at the Battle of Brunaburh, that one could really speak of one English people. See, what excites me about Alfred is he is going to bring together this heptarchy into one so that it actually begins to function together and bring a knockout blow to the Vikings. It's at this point, it, you know, if we were to get to the very beginning of the story, it's impossible. There is no way this is going to work. It's disgusting looking at these seven kingdoms. It's embarrassing. If you're one of, you know, if you're on the island of Britannia and someone comes to you and says, so how's your nation doing? <laughs> we're not doing so well. Why not? You have so much strength here. You have a lot of people here. Don't you believe in Christ? You have everything going for you. We're divided. So we can't agree on anything. Even the different nations are squabbling over who should be ruling them. So Northumbria, which is going to be the first one to get hit, the reason it's going to be hit is the two kings are feuding with each other, saying, I'm the rightful king. No, I'm the rightful king. And they're warring against each other in their own country. And guess what the Vikings are going to hit? Right there. I just introduced you to how it works in your life, too. The devil is looking for chinks and weaknesses. He's looking for breaches. Where you agree with the devil and where you're listening to the devil, that's a door. It just He hears the squeak of the hinge when it opens. And he's like, oh, thank you. I don't even need to beat down the door. I don't even need to pick a lock. I can just stroll right in. The great demise of the once godly nation. And again, you could say, are you talking about America or are you talking about Great Britain? Or, sorry, Britain. Well, that's the same principle. Or are you talking about Israel? You see, Israel starts out 
pretty impressive, guys. I don't know if you've ever studied early Israel, you know, the Mosaic days and then the, Jos- Joshua, Joshua, <laughs> the, the Joshua days. And, I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. 31 hostile empires, and then God's people are going to run in, and they're all just going to be knocked over. I mean, yeah, go, God. I mean, and then you see the Davidic kingdom and Solomon's reign. You have a once godly nation that is going to <laughs> fall to pieces. Now, you're also going to see God revive it. Multiple times, you're going to see this pattern. Some people call it the cyclical pattern of apostasy. Not the most wonderful thought, but the great demise of the once godly nation. Everyone does that which is right in their own eyes. You see, when everyone begins to think from their own lens of what they think is best, this is the surest sign that you are going to fall to pieces. Everyone considers themselves more important than others. So everyone becomes the center. And when everyone becomes the center, the fist thinks they're more important than the arm. The arm thinks it's more important than the shoulder. The shoulder thinks it's far more important than the torso. The torso just can't believe we could do this without legs. Come on, you think, oh, legs, that you're that important, but just watch. You go somewhere else, I can do this without you. Everyone thinks of themselves, and no one recognizes the fact that God built us to actually be interconnected with one another and to, in a sense, be interdependent. I need what you have. You need what I have. Let's work together. The word of God, this is what he says. You shall not, all, not at all do as we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. That's Deuteronomy 12.8. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 17.6. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 21.25. 20, 20, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. Proverbs 12.15. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. Proverbs 21.2. So the great secret of the again godly nation. So you notice I didn't say of the godly nation because that, that's just sort of like staring and going, well, wouldn't that be nice? But the again godly gives us a little hope. We used to be a godly nation. The, the history of this country is astounding. and Most people don't even talk about it anymore. It's, it's like politically incorrect to talk about our heritage now. We need to be ashamed of our heritage in this country when in actuality, wow, you study our heritage and it puts tingles up your spine. It is extraordinary what God did. God shed his grace on this country. He did something because there was the fear of God that entered into this land and it was a desire to use it for his glory. Did we make mistakes? Oh yeah. Anywhere you look on earth, you will find in the midst of a godly movement that there will be antics about And yet, there was something very, very precious here, and God has honored it over the years. But we have forsaken our first love. We have wandered. We have moved away from God's purposes to the point that we're not just a post-Christian nation. We have become an anti-Christian nation. How does that happen? Well, the great secret of the again godly nation, everyone submits to that which is right in God's eyes. Everyone considers others as more important than themselves. You see, when this begins to happen, the nation changes. So it starts in us. You can't wait for the nation to change. You have to start in you. It's an individual revival that actually creates a corporate revival. 
It always has to start with an individual. God doesn't just revive a nation. He revives individuals in a nation. Then when enough individuals are being revived, obviously it becomes the revival of a nation. Philippians 2, 3 through 4, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. The fist says to the arm, you know what? I, I've taken you for granted. Without you, I really couldn't do what I do. And I, I need to make that clear to you. Thank you. Thank you for what you do. I appreciate the fact that you work so hard holding me up all the time. And I, I really have taken that for granted. And then the arm says to the shoulders, like, you know, look, I, I don't know what I was thinking, but if you didn't hold on to me, if you weren't doing your job, I would just be limp at the side. I could have a big bicep, but I would be useless if you didn't actually serve me in the way you do. Thank you. Now there's the body of Christ looking around this room and beginning to see God actually knit us together on purpose. He built us as a body. The ironic twist to the mine mentality. The mentality of just sparing your own territory ultimately leads to the loss of all the territory. You know what's going to happen in this heptarchy, this seven uh, divided uh, nation system, is every one of the nations is going to use their military strength to try and protect themselves. And uh, ironically, when we live this way, we actually lose everything. You don't even preserve the little you have because you're supposed to use your little to give to others. And when we all serve one another with what we have, we become stronger and are able to actually keep the whole. But what's going to happen in Britannia is they're going to lose everything because they're all trying to protect their own little territory. We're going to call this denominationalism. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, uh, but you've all grown up in a Christian system that is marred by it. We have taken it so, uh, well, we don't, we're not even shocked by it, and we don't even think about it as a negative thing because we've grown up around it. And yet, it is very clearly indicted, condemned by Paul in 1 Corinthians. So clearly, in fact, that it's shocking that none of us do anything about it. Now, most of you would be like, what am I supposed to do about it? I, I get that. I feel the same way. What am I supposed to do about it? I mean, what is the solution for denominationalism? What's the solution for Britannia? Well, ironically, Alfred is going to rise up and he's going to call this country together. And he's going to give them something bigger to live for than mine, their own territory. The mine mentality applied to the island of theological truth. We are the ones that believe in the Holy Spirit. We're the ones that believe in baptism by water. We're the ones that believe that Shirt, skirts should never uh, go up higher than the kneecap. We're the ones that believe that uh, communion should be taken only once a month. And if you take it more than that, it desecrates it. Uh, we are the ones that believe in a certain eschatological viewpoint that in the end times, if you don't believe this, you will not be saved and raptured up. We are the ones that believe in a soteriological viewpoint the, of the five points of... <laughs> There are so many options on the table of how we could divide with one another. And God says, but there is one thing that unites us, and that's Jesus Christ and what he did on that cross. Make sure that we recognize we are an island. We have all been put on the same place, the same kingdom, to work together, not against one another, not into different camps, 
but God wants us to fight together. The COVID test. This is just a test for us. This isn't really a COVID test. This is a test from the COVID season. How did we handle the toilet paper shortage? You see, whenever you have a mind mentality, you have a tendency to hoard that which you have and try and stake claim and take from other territories, like steal someone from that church because your denomination's better. And so, I don't know if you guys remember the toilet paper shortage. It seems like so long ago, and many of us have tried to block it out of our mind because it's embarrassing. It really is. For our entire nation, it's embarrassing that we would even have a toilet paper shortage for a problem that had no need of extra toilet paper. (laughs) But once it happened, you remember how you began to think? I need toilet paper. (laughs) When you have six kids in your family, and some of you in here have more than that in your family, you begin to think, okay, because I'm not going to be one of those characters that's running to the grocery store and running away with toilet paper. But if I don't, <laughs> I'm going to be without toilet paper. I remember Googling uh, options, other options for toilet paper. Because I refused to play the game. I was not going to rush to grab toilet paper. But guess what? I still have need of toilet paper. And here's the thought that's going through my head. It's the same thought we have at every stoplight. You know, it's this very long line. And if everyone just sort of puts on their gas at the same time, we would just start moving. Instead, it's like one person, then another, then another. If everyone would just take the amount of toilet paper that they need, we'd be fine. However, the mind mentality, when it begins to rule a nation, will actually destroy a nation. We experienced it in just a very, very small level last year when everyone starts thinking about themselves and claiming toilet paper. I still remember when there was toilet paper on the shelves, and I just happened to be there early in the morning, which made me feel awkward because that's when you were supposed to get the toilet paper, right? And then I'm in there, and I'm thinking, I don't really want someone to see me getting toilet paper because I don't want them to think that, you know, I'm craving toilet paper. I really do need toilet paper. And I still remember there was another guy there, and the toilet paper was there on the shelf. There was a lot of it, right? And so I moved, and he moved at the same time, and then we're both like, oh, no, no, after you, after you. I did not not want to be the guy, right? And he didn't want to be the guy either, so both of us are standing there awkwardly not wanting to be the guy that is hoarding toilet paper. The Lindisfarne test. How did the seven nations on the island of Britannia handle the Viking invasion of 793? The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. So it's interesting because there's this historical account called the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle that goes all the way back to this time period and chronicles, like a newspaper, if you will, all that has happened in the history of this country. So it's pretty cool. In the year 793, terrible portents came over the land of Northumbria. So Northumbria is that area up near Scotland. It's the northern region. And miserably afflicted the people. There were massive whirlwinds and lightnings and fiery dragons were seen flying in the air. That's a little odd. Immediately after these things, there came a terrible famine. And then a little after that, six days before the Ides of January, the harrowing of heathen men, this is the Vikings, miserably devastated the church of God on Lindisfarne by plunder and slaughter. For nearly 350 years, okay, so this is, sorry, this isn't the same quote. This is Alcuin of York. So he's one of the bishops, and he is going to write to the king of Northumbria. And he's upset. He's like, if this type of demonic stuff is entering your country, it's because you must have sin. 
This is, this is his logic, okay? We have been protected for 350 years, and now this is happening. Check your heart, O king of Northumbria. Is there some, some form of wickedness that has been allowed into this country? For nearly 350 years, we and our fathers have dwelt in this most beautiful land, and never before has such a terror appeared in Britain, such as the one that we are suffering from this pagan nation. Nor was it thought that a ship should attempt such a thing. Behold, the church of St. Cuthbert, splattered with the blood of the priests of God, plundered by all its treasures, a place more venerable than anywhere in Britain, is given over to pagan nations for pillaging. The heritage of the Lord has been given over to a people who are not his own. And where the praise of the Lord once was, now is only the games of the pagans. The holy feast has been turned into a lament. Carefully consider, brothers, and diligently note, lest this extraordinary and unheard of evil might be somehow merited by the habit of some unspoken wickedness. If there is anything that must be set right in your behavior, correct it swiftly. This is a call to repentance. It's like, if this is happening, is it not possible that we have lost our faith and our position? of strength? Is it not that we have walked away from God? Check your position, O Northumbria, and see. The Viking strategy, this is it right here, take advantage of a weakened church. The devil is not dumb. He does not want to hit you square on when you're in your strength. He wants to whittle you down and weaken you from the sides, and if he sees a compromise, he's going to hit you there. So the devil knows how this works legally. He has actually no right to us, no access to us, unless we open a door. So his game is temptation, and he wants to get us to open a door. There's various doors that can be opened in our life. Compromise, sensuality, unforgiveness is actually a door. That's why I call it an open door sin. When you do not forgive, you immediately enter into a form of disobedience which then allows the enemy to come in, and usually what you have is resentment and bitterness that follow, which then are like a root system which takes over the rest of your life. The way to solve it, though, is to close the door. And so as a result, like for instance, say it's negative 10 degrees outside, which it is not right now, uh, but if it's negative 10 degrees, and if we're in here and it's 70 uh, degrees and temperature controlled, right? So the temperature in here would be 70 degrees, but what if it what if we leave all the windows open and that door open there? And it's gusting winds. What are you going to see? You're going to see snow in here. You're going to see the cold from outside is going to enter in. And if we're like, you know what? It's not supposed to be cold like this in here. Maybe we left something open. What would be the solution to close it? That's how Christianity works right there. In other words, God has still given us what we need, but if we give it up, it actually can bring compromise into our life and the outside world and its effects can actually begin to creep inside the sanctuary. Winston Churchill says, buccaneering had become a steady profession and the church was their perpetually replenished treasure house. Charlemagne's historian, Eigenhard, records that the ravages were continuous and a new shadow of fear spread over Christendom. No effective measures were, however, taken and the raiding business was so profitable that the taste of for it spread throughout Scandinavia. So they, all they had to do is, like, this church is so weak. They just come, and any, anywhere they go, they're going to get the treasures of the church. It's like, this is great, and no one is resisting. So as a result, they go back home with all these treasures, and what happens? Everyone in Scandinavia is like, I'm in. This is good stuff. 
These merry, clean-limbed, stout-hearted gentlemen of the Northlands, as one of their Scottish eulogists describes them, sailed every year in greatly increasing numbers upon their forays and returned triumphant and enriched, and their example inspired all audacious spirits and younger sons. This is Dr. Benjamin Merkel. Early descriptions of Viking attacks seized on the fact that Vikings made religious communities their targets of choice. According to the historians of the time, these marauding Northmen were pagan enemies of God, demonic forces at war with the Christian church. They coated the walls of the holy places with the blood of the saints and had no regard for the sacred things of the Christian church. So this is not an unusual thing. There is something when, when demonic things are coming against any land, they seem to have a special taste for those that stand for Christ but are weak in their position. It's disgusting to them just like it is to God, to lukewarm. Uh, lukewarmness just is disgusting. It's, it's limp. It doesn't have much of uh, a flavor. And as a result, the enemy seems to really relish taking it out. The devil is not dumb. Why would he attempt to break through the front gate of the castle when the north wall is missing? If he sees a breach in the wall, remember we talked about what a breach is. If you have a castle wall, you have a front gate, and it's usually the most heavily guarded, and it's stout, and that's where all the soldiers are going to be, and that's where they have the strongest defenses. But if part of the wall is broken down, if you're the enemy, why don't you just go in through the wall? Why would you try and break through the front gate? And that's exactly what happens in our own life. We create a breach in and through disobedience, in and through a wayward uh, process in our life, and as a result, the enemy is going to play upon that vulnerability. This is just how he works. A broken system. When you inherit broken, what do you do with it? So that's two sides to, to this issue. One is, we've inherited a broken church. What do we do with it? Alfred is going to inherit a broken nation, and he's going to inherit a broken island. What are you supposed to do? Just give up? Throw up your hands in the air? Most of us in here are not thinking Alfred-like thoughts. Let's change the whole thing. Let's bring England together. Let's do this thing. You have entered into an environment that is thinking exactly that thought. We call it the Ellerslie experiment. We refuse to allow denominationalism to continue another generation if we have a say in it. We want to see the church once again throwing the knockout punch. And so, I, I'm not asking you guys to compare notes and find out how different you are, but it's pretty funny. Pretty humorous how many differences there are in this room. We got some Northumbrians. We got some Mercians. We got some from Kent. I don't know, Kent, Kentlands. I'm not sure what the term is for that. We have some Wessexians. I don't know. Wexans. I don't know what, how you say it. In other words, we have some different territory, and you can see it, yeah? They're a little more blonde in their soul than these. These are more of a hardy soul with a big beard on their soul. And yet, God wants us to work together to purge out this darkness in our own lives and in this church at large. When you inherit broken, what do you do with it? Think Joseph. He's going to inherit broken. He comes from a broken family. What is he going to do? He is going to see that family reunite. He's going to be a part of healing a family. Isn't that an amazing thought? 
he is going to not just rebuild a broken family, but he is going to leverage that family into you know, the beginnings of a great strength, even though they're going to go through difficulty. Think Moses rebuilding a broken people. This people has been enslaved. They are broken down, and he is going to build them. Think David rebuilding a broken nation. When he first inherits the kingdom, he's the king of Judah. He's not the king of Israel. So as a result, when he takes over after Ishbosheth's death, he actually has a nation that has stood against him. And now he needs to bring them all together. Whew, these are some challenging things. Think Josiah rebuilding a broken devotion. Think Nehemiah rebuilding a broken wall. Think Jesus rebuilding broken lives. You see, the church is in the business of rebuilding that which is broken. This is Jesus' work. So as a result, let's not be intimidated by the fact that the church is broken, our nation is broken, but let's get sort of an Alfred twinkle in our eye and say, Lord, thank you for placing me on earth right now. The forerunner to fixing broken. So who's the guy who's going to ultimately be the greatest fixer of the broken is Jesus. But there's a forerunner to that. There is in our life as well. There's a movement of grace that prepares us to participate in the work of Christ. And it's a John the Baptist sort of work, which calls us to repentance. It calls us to lowness. It calls us to recognize his supremacy and the fact that we need to get out of the way to allow him to increase. Matthew 3, 1 through 2, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, church of Jesus Christ, repent, for God is ready to do something mighty, to unite the church, but he needs you to be made right so that we can participate. Oh, fist, repent of how you have treated the arm. Oh, arm, repent for how you've treated the shoulder. Oh, shoulder, repent for how you've treated the torso. Oh, torso, repent for how you've treated those legs. And legs, you repent for how you've treated that heart. You see, this is the body of Christ needing to first be rectified so that the fixer, <laughs> that sounds like some mob uh, boss position, doesn't it, the fixer, so that the one who repairs that which is broken can come and do what he does. And so here's the great motto, John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. That is the forerunner. The forerunner of that which is broken being fixed, the one who is truly the champion coming to town and getting the job done, is we all must not, no longer think what is right in our own eyes, but what is right in his eyes. We must decrease in our position, our own opinion, our own perspective, and allow his perspective to reign. Rebuilding the heptarchy, the seven pillars that wisdom is desiring to put together, the fist, the arm, the shoulder, the, the torso, the legs, the heart, the mind, that this would be woven together God's way, that this would be reestablished both in us and also like in our individual lives and in our lives corporately and with, our, with the church at large. You know, if we were to get on certain topics, we could easily get upset with each other. It is, it's not that far away. It's very close. And I could really toy with you by bringing up some fun doozies. 
And I could make a statement, and you'd be like, Ugh. I could even just take the vaccine. I mean, we could just play with the vaccine. And I could say, have you ever got the vaccine? Then, you know, and I'd have some conclusive. You're like, you'd immediately rise up. It's like, or if I said something like, the vaccine is no big issue. And then some of you would be like, oh, and you'd just jump out of your seats at me. We can split very easy. We're in a very fragile state. However, we are going to labor to see the body gain balance and get its coordination once again. Getting the power of the word all the way to the fist. You see, when the word is carried along by the Holy Spirit to my mind, and my mind is going to agree, and it's going to change my inner life. My heart is going to soften, and I'm going to say, yes, Lord. Then my feet begin to stand firmly on that rock, and then it begins to cause my torso to get in position and to get ready to pull back my shoulder for an aggressive move. My arm agrees, and my fist balls up. Then we are ready for business. But that is a process which starts with me humbling myself before his word, and repenting of how this body has been used up to this point. So one of the things that Leslie and I uh, did when God was working on us to sort of have a rebuilding season, because we were front lines ministry, but we recognized that we had not walked in the purity that we had even professed. There was, there was compromise there. there was, it was justifiable in our mind. It's like, well, it's not that big of a deal. But what we felt was necessary is that we would set our lives afresh before God and say, God, is there anything in our life, any open windows, any open doors? And we spent a couple days, we called it a sacred list, and we wrote down all these different things on a sacred list. And it was, it was a profound uh, process that we went through. And then we took everything on that list and we said, God, we are not going to stop praying until we see every one of those doors closed, every one of those windows shut. And it transformed our life. Ellerslie is going to ultimately flow out of that season. I want each of us to just be ready to be bent before God and to allow him to create a sacred list if necessary, that we would just say, yes, Lord, I'm ready. I'm ready for you to do what you must do. Father, we love you and we trust you. We ask that you would demonstrate your power and your glory in our lives and that you would rebuild the knockout punch in our individual lives and in the corporate church. Lord, we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.